You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Monster House presents. Hey there, this is Blake Smith. I'm not running in the ads in this episode. I'm excited to get out a classic style Monster Talk episode, and this is a thank you note for all of you who have supported us during this challenging time. Karen and I are deeply grateful that we have patrons who are supporting us at patreon.com forward slash Monster Talk. If you're able to help with that, we thank you. Your contributions are literally keeping the lights on at Monster Talk, or right now, perhaps more importantly, keeping the air conditioning on. But I also don't want anyone to feel guilty if you can't help us. Hopefully you're getting the help you need. In a time when all the media messaging is around being divided, it's more important than ever to find the things we have in common and to hold on to those. Stay safe, help each other, and watch out for monsters. Isn't he one of the Titans? He might be. He's big enough. Didn't Jason say something about Talos? This must be where Hephaestus molded the statues of the gods. Yes, and set them up for all the world to see. Robots don't always come from the future. In ancient times, before electric lights and telephones, people could still imagine a world with robots. And they also imagined how that might go wrong. Whether a robot's a monster or not often comes down to exactly who is being served. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. 
Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Thanks to everyone who's been participating with us on the Monster Talk Live events. But I have to tell you, I'm really excited to get back to doing some old school Monster Talk interviews. And it doesn't get much more old school than ancient Greece. Today, we're joined by Adrienne Mayer to talk about robots of ancient mythology. Her research for this and her many other books always seem to be right up my alley, and hopefully yours too. As a quick note, in the beginning of this episode, there's a little bit of rustling, but I think we get that under control within a few minutes. I know some of our listeners are very particular audiophiles. If you love this topic but have trouble with the audio quality, Adrian does have an audiobook version of her work that she reads herself, and it is terrific. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay, it's been a minute. Let's get to the Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, Adrian Mayer. It's so good to have you. Welcome. You are the author of The First Fossil Hunters, The Poison King, The Amazons, and the book that we're going to be talking about today, Gods and Robots. And you're a historian of ancient science and also a classical folklorist. My understanding is that you are a research scholar at Stanford University? That's right. All right. Does that also involve teaching? No, I don't teach. Uh, my post is uh, research only, so it's uh, renewed every five years as long as I am actively researching, publishing, and talking. <laughs> wow. That is Lucky. a dream job. Lucky lady. <laughs> I'm so grateful for it. But we do most of our research for free, and it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I was just going to get into the, the meat of the show to say that you've been talking about uh, Adrian's book, Gods and Robots, for months now, nonstop. You're really excited about doing this interview. I am. And uh, unfortunately, I haven't had time to read the book yet. So I was hoping that we could get a bit of an overview or an elevator pitch about what the, the book's Ooh, about. Great idea, Karen. Okay. I started with a question. Who first imagined robots, replicants, automatons, artificial intelligence? <laughs> that kind of thing. And I knew that historians of technology usually trace the first self-driven machines and self-moving uh, devices to the Middle Ages using clockwork mechanisms. And I did a little more research and found out that some philosophers of science have actually argued that no one in antiquity uh, would be able to imagine automatons before the technology existed. And I, I knew that that was a crazy idea because where does innovation and invention come from if you can't imagine mm -hmm. that before they exist, right? That's where innovation comes from. So I really, I, I really thought that I would be able to find some evidence for people in antiquity, long before the technology existed, being able to uh, imagine artificial beings or robots. And I did find that. I found that um, uh, as early as Homer, Homer describes the god Hephaestus, the, the god, of course, of innovation and technology. Uh, Homer describes the uh, self-moving devices and automatons made by Hephaestus, and they're all mostly for the benefit of the gods. But it's when they start making, he starts making uh, artificial beings and sending them down to earth, that's when trouble starts. That's when Asimov's laws of robots uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm thinking now of Talos, the great bronze robot that, that protected Crete, and of course Pandora, the artificial woman that she just wreaked havoc on, on humankind. So uh, 
Once they start coming down to earth and interacting on the human plane, that's when trouble starts. We're hearing a little bit of paper noise. I can close my window. As Karen said, I, I really enjoyed your book. I, I've been doing a lot of research for my own book on technology and, and innovation. And oh, yeah. it was, yeah, I, I just, I love it. So, um, and you've already hit on some really cool points that I'm, I'm very interested in. Now, you did, a lot of this book deals with myths and history of the uh, ancient Mediterranean and ancient times, but you also kind of tie it in with modern technology and give us ways to think about this as uh, living in the now. You, do you want to talk a little bit about the overlap between how these mythical ideas still have relevance today? Oh, I think they have a lot of relevance uh, in almost every single myth that I found about artificially created beings. We had created, these were uh, products of technology. In fact, they're described as made, not born. Uh, both Talos, the, the bronze robot of Crete, uh, described in uh, Homeric times and Pandora, they were both described as beings that were made, not born, and they were made by a god of technology. So they're, they're, they're thought of as technological products. And I think that really has a lot of relevance. And I, I find that AI and robotic and computer and tech people in Silicon Valley are quite amazed to find this out, that these things were imagined that early, so, so much uh, earlier than uh, the technology to make self-moving devices uh, actually was invented. But of course, that was the ability to make self-moving devices happened quite early too. If you think of the myths of Talos and Pandora, they go back to about 750 BC, but by the fourth century BC, people were creating self-moving devices. Like uh, uh, the very first one was made by Archytas, who was a, a friend of Plato. He made a model of a bird that could fly. Engineers today say that it, uh, they speculate that it was probably driven by steam. Um, people have made replicas. There's a museum that everyone should know about in Athens called the Museum of Ancient Greek Technology that tries to make reproductions and figure out the engineering of these ancient um, not only the ones described in mythology by Homer and Hesiod, but the ones that were actually being built in the fourth century up through uh, the time of um, the Roman Empire, made in Alexandria, Egypt, by real inventors and craftsmen and uh, uh, innovators. And they have tried to figure out how these things worked, both how they were imagined in antiquity and then how they were created in historical times. So I think there's a lot of overlap there that's pretty interesting. The other uh, overlap, I think, between antiquity and now is that they, in antiquity, actually foresaw some of the, not only practical problems, but ethical problems and uh, issues that would, we're grappling with today, I think. I've got several books I've uh, picked up in relevant to my own research, and I, I couldn't help but by the ones about ancient technology. And there's so many things that just astonish me. Uh, uh, mechanical clocks being much older than I expected, all kinds of things around uh, water lifting, you know, the Archimedes screw. And the stories about um, sort of automatic doors at temples that would give it sort of a mystical seeming um, right. quality. I mean, it's just amazing. People tend to underestimate, I think, what happened in the past? Well, it's a mixture, isn't it? Because you've got, on the one hand, you've got people who think everyone in the past was primitive. And on the yeah. other hand, you've got the people who think everything in the past was better than now. They, they sort of agree Hancock. Yeah, so. It's interesting that the ancient Greeks, in these uh, the myths they're talking, 
talking about robots and they're imagining that they were built in the past, not that they would, these would be built in the future. They're still science fictions, but they're about uh, advanced technology in the past. <laughs> Maybe we should ask how you define the mythic. I think that I would define the mythic as uh, ancient thought experiments about what might be achieved using the materials, the methods that real craftsmen, say bronze workers or uh, uh, blacksmiths, used in, in their forges and their workshops. But if you're a god and you have this incredible ability and brilliance of creativity, these myths allowed people to sort of ponder what could be achieved, what, what kind of marvels and wonders could be achieved by a god who is a blacksmith but has these awesome powers. So in that way, they are science fictions. We had a little bit of audio trouble here in the interview when discussing the definitions as used in Adrian's text. In her own words, her definitions for these terms were used informally, and these are terms whose definition is not without controversy in general. Now, we've talked before about the origin of the word robot. Are you a robot? Does anyone know what robot means? I, yeah, I do. Yes, Gary. Uh, it means slave. Oh, very good, Gary. The word robot was first used to describe automated beings in the play R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots, by Carl Chopik. In her glossary, Adrian defines some terms for the purposes of her book, and I'll read two of those, and then we'll get back to the interview. The first, automaton, a self-moving mechanical or constructed device, usually resembling an animal or human, that is not directly operated by an agent. Some automata are machines that perform tasks according to predetermined instructions. Some automata can respond with a range of responses to different circumstances. Robot or bot. Complex and ambiguous to define, but a robot is usually a machine or self-moving object with a power source that provides energy. It can be programmed to sense its surroundings and has a kind of intelligence or way of processing data to decide to interact with the environment to perform actions or tasks. Let's get back to that interview. So a power source and inner workings is what I use to define a robot in antiquity. And that, um, that definition is fulfilled by the first robot in, in mythology, and that would be Talos, the giant bronze android that guarded the island of Crete. We're told that he has inner workings and he also has a power source. So he is definitely technological. And uh, I'm wondering, you were talking about robots created by gods as opposed to those created by people. What is What are some of the differences between those two different kinds of robots? Are the, the ones created by gods far more advanced? <laughs> well, yes, in the myths, they're very advanced. And so I devoted most of my book to the myths and legends of uh, automatons and artificial beings. And then mm -hmm. in my last chapter, I talk about historical, actually built, constructed, and designed uh, automatons and self-moving devices. So obviously, I think that when, when you think of um, just uh, the story of Daedalus, the myth of Daedalus, creating wings, a sort of form of artificial life, because he's trying to borrow the powers of birds and right. allow himself and his son to fly. And he tries to make actually very realistic birds' wings. He collects feathers 
and then glues them together and then makes these uh, wings and they actually succeed. So that's a myth of really imagining what a genius, brilliant inventor like Daedalus could make uh, just mm -hmm. because of his awesome creativity. Uh, no one made anything like that in reality, but they did make a model of a bird that could fly a few yards. Um, I think another important distinction in antiquity when talking about these myths of automatons and robots, artificial beings, is that we're not talking about inert matter or uh, things that were suddenly brought to life by a god's command or by a magician's spell. We're talking about things that were described as being constructed, being created with tools and uh, various methods and technologies rather than just brought to life by magic. Right. This reminds me of the Antikythera mechanism. And I, I see so many shows where they act like this has got to be alien technology. But, for, but to me, it means that we've lost the records of a period in time when people had mastered the concept of gears and mastered yeah. all the mathematics of actually turning you know, rotary motion into a, a, a close approximation to celestial motion. Yes, and um, the, the Antikythera device is fascinating, especially if you've studied folklore and urban legend and hoaxes and things that one should be skeptical about, as you have. When the device was first discovered in that shipwreck in the 60s, and for a long time, it was thought to be fake. And that it was uh, that it was a modern thing constructed to look ancient and could not possibly have been ancient, um, and yet it was in a shipwreck with all these datable things, coins and various statues and and vases. So it finally has achieved credibility, and people discover more about it every year. They're finding new things that it can do or that it was able to do and find, even actually finding new inscriptions within the machine itself to explain how the, how the gears worked. And so it has been called the world's first computer, and yet it was thought to be just impossible that it couldn't have been ancient when it was first found. Yeah, it's interesting because what it implies is there had to have been predecessors, technologically speaking, that we don't have any record of. You know, this, uh, it's very unlikely this came you know, like Athena out of someone's head, right? You know? I, I doubt very much that it was uh, unique. I, yeah. And in fact, there are a few other descriptions in uh, Roman writings, Cicero and various other uh, Roman writers who talk about similar devices. This is just the only one that we have. We know that uh, a similar device was looted from Mithridates, the King Mithridates' uh, kingdom, by Sulla and Lucullus, the Romans who, who fought Mithridates' kingdom in the first century BC, there is a description that they looted um, something very similar. And we know that the, the shipwreck was actually filled with items looted from Mithridates' kingdom in that period. So, so there were other devices like that, it's just that we only have the physical remains of this one device. And Adrian, you touched upon ethical problems and issues a little while ago uh, with robots. And I'm wondering what kinds of uh, issues and problems that you encountered in your research? Well, I think one of the big uh, dilemmas that people talk about today with AI and robots is 
the question of whether this kind of technology encourages or aids tyranny, whether tyranny and technology are linked somehow in some nefarious relationship. After I wrote the book, I really wondered how ancient the roots are of that problem. And it turns out that that too is a problem that was recognized in antiquity. Do tyrants, are they somehow drawn to this kind of technology? And it turns out they are, not only in mythology, but in history. So in the mythology, you just think about who uh, commissions and deploys Talos or Pandora, things like that. It's kings and gods. Uh, it's the king of the gods, actually. Zeus is the one who commissions all of these things. And as I pointed out earlier, when, when they get sent to Earth, they, they cause all sorts of havoc and, and problems for humans. Uh, and they're deadly, actually, for humans. So there is definitely a link in the mythology between tyranny and technology. And then I started looking at ancient history itself to find documented cases of tyrants and autocrats. And of course, they, they held contests to find the best automated war machines, for instance. That's how the torsion catapult was, was discovered. The tyrant of Sicily held a contest to see who could make, innovators were invited from all around the Mediterranean world to make bigger and better and more deadly war machines. And they came up with the catapult. And, and of course, then that was improved upon and then fire bolts and Greek fire and all these things. So technology has uh, attracted tyrants and tyranny since antiquity, both in myth and in history. Mm -hmm. And uh, just got a kind of follow up question, too. I was wondering how are robots distinguished from people in these early myths? Yes, that's, a, that's an interesting question, because and for that, I would not only um, point to the descriptions that they were Ephesus Talos made of bronze. He's a bronze man uh, who is self-moving and he, is, uh, he has inner workings. Um, his inner workings, I'll just describe them. Uh, okay. As far as we know, um, and I wish we had better descriptions, but it's amazing that we have a description from about 700 BC well, of we, his we, inner workings. We, we do have a, a video. The Harry House movie. <laughs> the movie. <laughs> we have a movie. We have. <laughs> Are you talking about the 1963 cult film, Jason and the Argonauts? Please? I am. I, is that not a document? <laughs> that's a documentary, right? Is that not a documentary? <laughs> that's a documentary. In fact, that was live. The first image in my book is of that version of Talos. Um, I love that movie, and I think that uh, they really captured the myth very well. The inner workings were described in about 700 BC that he had a single artery or vein or tube that went from his head down to his foot, and that we also know he had a power source. See, this is what makes him a robot, inner workings right. with a power source. His power source is mysterious, of course, um, just like many things are mysterious to us today. Um, but his power source was said to be Ikor. Ikor is the uh, life fluid of the gods. It's what makes them immortal. So he, this is a bronze self-moving man who is powered by Ikor. And it pulses sort of like a primitive idea of electricity in this single tube. Um, wow. And so he's a kind of 
cyborg in that he has sort of humanoid features and machine features. And this whole system is a kind of a viva system of a cyborg is sealed with a bronze bolt on his ankle. So he doesn't know his own nature though. He uh, is meant to be a per, you know, sort of perpetual motion machine marching around the island of Crete uh, three times a day throwing boulders at any encroaching ships. And if anyone should make it ashore, he has a, another capability for close combat. He grabs up a victim and then heats his body to red hot. He's made of bronze and then crushes the victim to his chest to roast them alive. So he has these capabilities Ouch. of reacting to invasions and he's programmed, right? Um, and he's got this inner source, uh, inner power source. And it's Medea, sort of a techno wizard sorceress who happens to be along with Jason and the Argonauts. And she figures out how to destroy him. She figures out that it, she guesses that he might have developed uh, human sort of sensibilities or emotions. So she convinces him that he is vulnerable and that he might die, but she can make him immortal. He doesn't realize that his inner power source already makes him immortal. So he, he has this human desire to be immortal. And she says, I can make you immortal, but only if you let me remove that bronze nail on your ankle. And he agrees to this. So here we have a robot who's uh, going beyond what the uh, maker and what the owner have designed him to do because mm -hmm. he's developed a kind of consciousness. Well, right. Jason and, and Medea remove that bolt and his ichor bleeds out, and now he dies. And I think um, what's really interesting is that in the movie, the 63 movie of Jason and the Argonauts, they really uh, make the robot very sympathetic at that moment when he's dying. He clutches his throat and uh, it sort of swoons backwards and, and then crumbles. And yeah. in base paintings that we have of Talos, the artists humanize him in the same way. They show him as a bronze man. He's painted the same color that they painted bronze. And he's even got like rivets and seams on him. But he's swooning backwards. His eyes roll up. And one artist actually painted a teardrop falling from Talos's eye as he's dying. So I think that the ancient Greeks, they did have this um, sort of ambivalence about whether this is a machine or a human kind of hybrid right. robot android almost like a superhuman yeah well and I, in in addition to just i like stop motion photography harry Housen always humanized his monsters mm -hmm. he, or, or he gave them emotional content and so yeah. you can't help but feel that shared agony when when he dies even though he was endangering the heroes i mean it's a really empathetic scene i love it love mm -hmm. it and I think uh, the humanizing is what makes his death seem tragic. I mean, after all, he's just doing the job that he was programmed to do. Like we then, all are. But and then he, <laughs> he has and he's cruelly tricked. I mean, I mean, uh, the cruel trick that uh, Medea plays on him, and then he dies. Uh, we we tend to humanize robots. Studies show that we tend to bestow a sort of human feelings and emotions on them, especially if they have a name and a backstory. Right. And Talos did have that. And so he, he is humanized and his death seems tragic. Sadly, there were, there were tragic plays, but I think Sophocles wrote a tragic play that 
that was about Talos, but it's lost. And I, we can imagine that it was probably, I think it was probably exactly like <laughs> the Jason and the Argonauts movie with the, the, with the stop action stuff by, by uh, Harry Hausen. Probably well, I, very, very similar. I think I think we have a tendency to to humanize anything that has a face too. I know I noticed my family yeah. mm-hmm. my family mm-hmm. treats my cats as though they were all kinds of amazing and they're just cats. Okay. He's <laughs> not a cat lover. <laughs> but the, you know, uh, think of me, think of another movie, another cult movie, uh 2001 when um the astronaut Dave is dismantling Hal. Yeah, he, tell, he tells his story. He tells his backstory. He does. It's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he, he's telling all these memories that he's been programmed with. And that's when he seems most human. It's when he's being dismantled. Yeah, he is definitely more human when he's singing a song yeah. than when he's killing astronauts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and you know, the audience, I mean, the director knows that they can trick us that way to, into mm-hmm. feeling empathy for him. I'm so glad you gave us that backstory on Talos. That was one of my questions. But I also, we've talked about Daedalus several times. And it seems like if there's a clever invention in ancient myth, at least in the Greeks, it always gets attributed to Daedalus. And, I, and even now, I think there's this, a tendency in fiction and folklore to always attribute anything amazing technological to some famous inventor like Edison or Tesla or back then to Archimedes. Is there any evidence that Daedalus was a real person or is he just sort of a super genius placeholder like the Reed Richards of ancient Greece? Well, he probably wasn't a real person. Um, The theory is that he stands for a series of brilliant inventors who did make things like uh, things like doors that would open and close like like you mentioned for temples. Daedalus was probably just stood for all of those innovators. Uh, probably not one individual real inventor, but just to stand for uh, the brilliance and creativity of Greek inventions. There were, I mean, besides the temple doors that could open and close as if by magic, there, there were statues that could blink, that could um, lift their arms, turn their heads, and uh, open doors. Um, poor libations and just think of, of seeing these statues in antiquity that they're animated statues and there are ways that you can make statues do things like that blink open their mouths move their arms maybe even take a step forward uh, pour pour something from a jug into a bowl something like that um, or seem to start a fire just imagine the, these bronze statues were painted hyper realistically they were. They looked very real. They were life size. They, their eyes were inlaid gems. They had eyelashes, fingernails. They're just incredibly hyper real, and you see them at night with just a, an oil lamp or something. These would look real. There, there'd be an, an uncanny valley effect. Sure. Yeah. Creepy. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti, and I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. 
So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Just seems like, uh, from everything you've been saying, that all of your research uncovered a lot of myth and a lot of fact at the same time uh, I guess I'm just wondering how you kind of balanced uh, the mythology and the stories with the reality with modern reality or with ancient reality um, oh ancient and modern reality yes well I, I really what I was most interested in it was uh, uncovering ancient um, visions of artificial life in mythology um, okay. because I know there are there are a lot of books that outline ancient Greek technology in historical times, these kind of inventions. They're not that well known, which is why I'm mentioning the museum in Athens that that uh, actually reproduces them. So that they're working models of these historical devices that people made. They were like little theaters that would roll out and then the curtains would open automatically mm-hmm. and there would be scenes inside of moving gods and hissing snakes and roaring dragons, probably all steam-driven with some hydraulics and some levers and and pulleys, Mm -hmm. things like that. They're just incredibly ingenious. Some of them were miniature and some of them were were monumental. King uh, Ptolemy Philadelphus in uh, Alexandria during that time when I I was talking about all the inventors who flocked to Alexandria, uh, you could almost call Alexandria at that time uh, the, the Silicon Valley of antiquity or something. But he commissioned lots and lots of these devices. And he had a huge grand procession that took several days and went several miles. And it featured monumental animated statues. Uh, for instance, one of them was a goddess who was seated on a throne, very realistic once again, and the float or cart was pulled by 300 men. And periodically along the route, uh, the spectators would see this goddess rise from her throne, stand up and pour a libation 
from a jug into a bowl, libation of milk. And then she would sit down and she had to do this regally and you know, in a um, stately manner befitting a goddess many times along the route. So engineers in Amsterdam have tried to figure out what, what could be the mechanism for this. Mm -hmm. Um, and they have figured out and there's a whole paper on withdrawings and everything of, of how uh, the robust mechanism that they must have had to to um, make this goddess 10 feet tall stand, pour a libation and sit down uh, in, a, in a stately manner. Um, it, it's really quite fascinating what they were able to do. In, Absolutely. In yeah. And I always thought libations were alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> in this case it was milk because she was the goddess who was the nursemaid of Dionysus but right oh. behind her came a float of Dionysus pouring libations of wine and we sat in the Karova milk bar trying to make up our Razudox what to do with the evening the Karova milk bar sold milk plus which is what we were drinking this would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old Ultraviolence. Here we go. <laughs> it could have you could have made a primitive white Russian. That would have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So uh, one of the things that surprised me, I I, I feel like I was well read in the, the Greek myths until I realized how much I've forgotten. I need to go back and reread because I was reading about Pandora and what I remembered was, you know, Pandora has a box and she opens it and all the <laughs> horrors of mankind come out, but she closes it in time to save hope. That's the sort of short, quick version. And then it turns out there was so much wrong with that. Can you talk about some of the things about that story that people seem with that me, let's talk about what I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the story that you knew was the um, sort of fairy tale version that we all learned as children uh, about Pandora's box. And in that modern fairy tale version, Pandora is uh, depicted as sort of a young woman with a sort of tragic case of curiosity who opens a, a sealed box. Um, the, a forbidden box and inadvertently releases eternal misery on humankind, all these horrible things like plague and illness and death and uh, all these things swarm out of her box. And then there was at the bottom of the box was, was a little fairy named Hope. The original story of Pandora is nothing like that. In fact, it's one of the oldest Greek myths. So the story of Pandora was uh, recorded more than 2,700 years ago in about the time of Homer. And in the original telling, she was not an innocent young girl who sort of gave into the temptation to open the forbidden box. And in fact, she had a jar, not a box. That was a mistranslation of the, word, of the Greek word box in the Middle <laughs> Ages. But in the original story, she was an artificial woman, made not born. She was made by the god Hephaestus, uh, she was commissioned by Zeus and designed uh, to his cruel specifications. He wanted to make an artificial woman that would be a trap for mankind in order to punish humans for accepting the gift of fire that was stolen by Prometheus and given to vulnerable humans. So Zeus told Hephaestus, I want you to make a beautiful artificial woman who will be evil disguised as beauty uh, to entrap mortals. And she was brought as a bride to 
Epimetheus, who turns out to be Prometheus's brother. She was presented as a bride to Epimetheus on earth. And she brings as her dowry, she has this sealed jar. And Epimetheus is dazzled by her beauty. He falls for this She's a fembot, actually. I mean, she's like an AI um, <laughs> agent sent to Earth with one mission. Her one mission is to insinuate herself into human society and then open that jar filled with pain and suffering eternally for humans. And Epimetheus accepts her as a bride, even though Prometheus warns him, do not accept this gift from Zeus. What's yeah. really funny in the Greek myth is that Prometheus and Epimetheus, their names are very significant. Prometheus means foresight, always looking ahead. And Epimetheus, unfortunately, his name means hindsight, um, unable to look ahead. So he goes for the short-term gains. Um, the dumber brother, yeah. yeah. He, 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 ignores, uh, he ignores his brother's warning and and she then fulfills her mission on earth, opens the uh, opens the, the urn or jar, and, and we never hear of Pandora again. Her mission is accomplished. That's it. Uh, she doesn't really have anything else to do. She has no desires, no agency, nothing. She's just been programmed to open that jar. And we hear in the poem, the original poem, Epimetheus regretted his decision only later. <laughs> 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 that is indeed a very different story to the one we grew up with. Absolutely. And and the, even the figure of hope, of course, is in the fairy tale story, hope is this sort of fairy that uh, emerges from the box to sort of offer comfort to humankind because of all these awful things that have been inadvertently uh, released from the box by Pandora. But in the original ancient Greek myth, Pandora... Uh, First of all, curiosity is never mentioned. And hope, in classical antiquity, hope was not a good thing. Hope was called blind hope. It deprives us of the ability to, to look forward, to see the future, uh, to be like Prometheus. And since antiquity, philosophers and playwrights was sort of debate about whether hope, the last thing in the, in the, in the jar, was that the best thing or the worst thing. And it's usually agreed that it might have been the worst thing. Um, in fact, some Greek artists actually depicted Hope as a as a young woman with a sort of sly smirk on her face. <laughs> There's some face paintings that show her it popping up out of the out of Pandora's jar, and she's got this wicked smile on her face. Oh, I, I have to say, I, I've lately I've been lately thinking Hope is a kind of madness. So that's yeah, for sure. That is really interesting, yeah. and that is so Greek. That is a very ancient Greek way of thinking of it. Yeah, but yeah. but you know what? Uh, this myth does give us the hope chest. Those are handy. We're going to have to stop. Depends what's in it. <laughs> it better not be a dowry like Pandora's. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say we have to start referring to opening a Pandora's jar from now on. And exactly. Yes. All the time. <laughs> or urn. Yes. All those other monsters are amphora gory. <laughs> okay that's obscure sorry <laughs> very obscure <laughs> but that's this show <laughs> so many things that we can we can talk about uh, with this topic but i believe there's a lot of material about ancient greece in the book but also you touch upon egyptian and, and asian cultures in the book too are there any legends 
that you'd like oh. to highlight from from those parts of the world? Yes, that's something. It's pretty I really broad, broad question. Sorry. Yeah, but it's a really good question because I do want to point out that the the Greeks were not unique in imagining making artificial life or uh, sort of imitating nature, improving on nature, and then surpassing nature by making creatures that were made, not born, sort of artificial creatures. And one of my favorite legends comes from ancient India, uh, from the time of Buddha. There was a legend that uh, when Buddha died, his bodily uh, remains were hidden deep under a, a temple in an underground chamber and guarded by robot warriors. And these robot warriors were set to guard Buddha's relics until some future king could disable them or battle those warriors and defeat them and then gather up Buddha's sacred relics and then uh, disperse them and send them around the world to various shrines in China, in Sri Lanka, and various parts of India and Tibet and places like that. So um, the idea of robot warriors defending some precious treasure existed. That's, uh, that's pretty ancient. And that comes from India. I had recently learned about the Egyptian Shabtis, these little afterlife robots. And I kept thinking, how cool is that? Like, I never had heard about those until like really recently. I mean, obviously they're ancient, but there's plenty of things I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> but just the idea that you'd have robot servants when you die seems super handy. Yes. And there are, there are a bunch of stories about those kind of figures. And that, that some of them have actually been found in, in uh, archaeological sites in Egypt. There are stories of magicians or sorcerers making, model, uh, making ships and then making robots uh, who could then row and uh, man the ships. And then at some point in the, in the story, they, they sort of develop consciousness and ability to interact with their, with their surroundings. That's very similar to the story in the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, when Odysseus finally, you know, he's trying to get home after the Trojan War. It takes him 10 years, his many adventures, and he finally meets a king of a very advanced, mysteriously advanced society. And he tells this king how much he wants to get back to his home island. And the king says, well, you'll go in one of my ships. My ships are navigated by thought alone. Uh, they don't need any captains, no, no one to row, no navigator. They just navigate on their own. You just tell the ship where you want to go, and it will devise the route and take you there by tomorrow and then return to me. So there we have... Uh, a GPS system, imagine. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so there are lots of ancient stories of uh, robots and automatons from ancient India and China as well. I just don't know them as well. I, I have a few examples in my book, and I'm really uh, looking forward to a book that's going to be written by uh, someone, at, I think it's the University of Missouri. Her last name is Cohen. She's going to write about Indian robots from ancient India. Ooh, so I'm really hoping that that book comes out soon. I don't know of anyone working on the Chinese stories, but that, that would also be a very rich topic. Someone recently told me, uh, pointed out that the, um, the Hindu story of the goddess Kali, the goddess of destruction, has echoes of a robot story. As this person um, pointed out to me that the, the gods got together 
uh, and decided to create Kali so that she could then destroy a terrible demon. And sort of like Pandora, Kali was a being that was made, not born. And all the gods contributed something to her making, just like just like the gods contributed to Pandora's uh, construction. And Kali is created then, and she succeeds in defeating this terrible demon. But then she becomes a threat because she has powers beyond uh, what any of the other gods have, because she has a combination of all these destructive powers that they gave her. And she sort of exceeds her programming, um, sort of in the way that Talos made a, a bad decision. In his case, it was uh, destructive to himself. But in the case of Kali, she goes on a rampage and has to be stopped by all the gods somehow are able to stop her. But still, she um, she is the goddess of destruction and was sort of made, not born, like an automaton. Well, actually, you know, that explains her appearance. Um, the other gods all <laughs> apparently lended a hand. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> we, we should have warned you about him. <laughs> you should be punished for that. That's really something. Uh, so I, I was... Uh, I was wondering too, you were talking about how the, the robots were designed by gods. Who actually made them physically? Made them physically in the myths. It was almost always Hephaestus, the blacksmith god. He's the one that, uh, he made not only Talos and Pandora, but he made all these uh, labor-saving devices for the gods up in the heavens too. He made uh, He made automatic, uh, gates to the heavens that would open and close as the gods and goddesses drove their chariot chariots in and out of the heavens when they had to visit earth sort of like the like automatic garage doors <laughs> yeah. uh, he created a bank of automated bellows for his forge that could blow more or less uh, air as as he needed when he was uh, working with the molten metal he created some uh, self-driving carts with uh, three wheels, uh, tripods. Um, he, had, he had robot servants too, didn't he? He had robot servants and these self-moving tripods were like delivery carts. They delivered ambrosia and nectar to the gods' banquets and then they returned when they were empty automatically. And then, as you say, he made this uh, crew of automatic golden women to be servants uh, and they anticipated his every need and Homer describes all of these entities. He says that these golden women look just like real women, but they were made of gold and they were endowed with strength and mind and reason. But then he goes even further. He says, these golden servants were endowed with all the knowledge of the gods. Uh, that's quite a data dump there. You don't yeah. know that, but that makes them a mythical version of AI. I mean, they've got all this data. And they're going to anticipate Hephaestus's needs, so they're almost doing machine learning. It's quite amazing, and it it's is. it's unfortunately not a long passage, but there's a lot mm -hmm. packed in there. Would that be Aphrodite? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> so uh, one uh, one thing that a recurring theme in the book is uh, robotic soldiers and robotic war machines. I know that's still a thing. I mean, like we're always still looking for, in fact, I guess right now with drones actually doing military strikes, we're in that world now. 
Um, we are, yes. And um, I think I'm, I did mention in my book that DARPA, the Pentagon uh, scientists, uh, military scientists, are trying to make a uh, sort of exoskeleton with AI and robotics that, that soldiers could wear uh, into battle that would make them into supermen, uh, sort of like Talos. And in fact, what did they name it? T-A-L-O-S. Uh, wow. Let's see. It's an, they came up with an acronym uh, that is the same as Talos. So they read their, they read their Greek mythology themselves. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you, you know that eagle, the eagle that um, came to peck out the, the liver of Prometheus. Yes. To punish him for stealing the technology of fire and giving it to humans. Zeus commissioned Hephaestus to construct that eagle of bronze. Uh, so that's almost like a drone. Uh, we hear in um, in the Argonautica, the ancient epic about Jason and the Argonauts, they actually observe that eagle flying over their ship at the same time every day with a sort of whirring sound. And they describe the, the feathers moving like oars on a boat. So it's, it's described like a machine, like a yeah. drone. Yeah. But it, it, Zeus is kind of a jerk. I mean, he commits <laughs> he, he, he commits sins of commission and emission. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> um, and of course, he's a tyrant who loves mm -hmm. technology. He's the one who commissions. He's portrayed as a cruel tyrant who uses technology to harm humans. Some lessons for today, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> We talked about war. We should talk about love. I mean, not not all artificial beings are made for war. There's quite a few figures in the book who are artificial lovers. Of course, Pandora was made to look very seductive, but we don't hear anything more about her. But in the story of uh, Pygmalion and Galatea, Pygmalion is a is a young man who dislikes real women, um, and so he makes a statue of his ideal lover and in the in the original myth takes the statue to bed with him every night and makes love to it and then by day goes to the temple of Aphrodite or Venus and begs the goddess of love to bring the statue to life so that he can have his ideal young woman uh, girlfriend and Aphrodite um, takes pity on him. Uh, that's how the star story is told to us today. But I often think that the gods sometimes grant these wishes just as kind of a, a, a macabre sense of humor to see what's going to happen. Um, anyway, the next time he takes this statue to, uh, to bed with him and begins to caress it and kiss it, the statue comes to life. And the story is told to us by Ovid, the poet during the time of Augustus. But, you know... In modern times, the story is told to us as a kind of romantic love story. But if you read Ovid, it's pretty creepy. I mean, sounds it. <laughs> yeah, it cre um, it's the first sex spot because yeah. <laughs> Ovid describes her. He describes her coming alive, and he says she blushes. But of course, she doesn't speak. She doesn't have any desires of her own or agency. She can't mm -hmm. communicate or uh, initiate any action. And Ovid goes on to say that her uh, skin doesn't even feel human. It feels like wax that has been warmed by molding it. And then he goes on and says, 
she became useful by being used. I mean, this is really, really wow. creepy story. <laughs> <laughs> I always imagined she would eventually develop, you know, a personality and headaches, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the problem. I, she's a sex doll. And we have a lot of stories of statue lust in antiquity. Mm, don't Google this, people. Don't love. Google <laughs> <laughs> Fall in love with statues and then try to... Uh, take action, and we—they're uh, discovered uh, in temples trying to make love to statues of of Aphrodite. So this is not just uh, this isn't just once again it's not a unique story. There were several cases like that that were reported and uh, documented. <laughs> it sounds like a, another show. I think uh, <laughs> a monster talk. Yeah, you may want to after <laughs> to that monster, monsters after dark. <laughs> well, we can probably wind up here. I do. Let me ask one more, and then you, we can finish up. Uh, which is, <laughs> what does the culture's myths about ro robots and automatons tell us about their values? Do you think? I don't really know how to answer that because I don't have um, enough information from other cultures other than ancient. oh yeah good point okay well how about so, that what, what do you think it tells us about the greeks i mean is, is it do you think they're i mean it seems like are the, some of it is modeling things they wish they had some of it's modeling things surely if a god was around they wouldn't do all this work themselves right <laughs> right um and that's that's really uh interesting because the um the stories i just told you from the myth of Hephaestus. I mean, he has this fabulous resume of all of these uh, labor-saving devices that he makes. And what's interesting is he's he's the only only god with a job, um, but he's also the only god who is is lame. And so maybe it's natural that uh, he would think of making labor-saving devices. It's that's sort of interesting that that the Greeks had him be the one who would actually invent all these things that would that would help humans. And I think it's interesting that uh, Sophocles, as I mentioned earlier, wrote tragedies that featured Talos, but he also wrote a tragedy about Pandora. Both of them are lost, unfortunately. But we do have a passage that praises human ingenuity that is very typical of ancient Greek culture. He praises the audacious creative powers of human beings uh, in in sort of figuring out ways to sort of escape the forces forces of nature, and then also to imitate the forces of nature. And Sophocles points out that no no other being has this ingenuity and this drive to sort of surpass nature. And that at the end, Sophocles says, "But we must always remember that that can lead to good or evil." So I think what all these myths about uh, automatons and and robots and artificial life tell us about the Greeks is that they thought hard about natural and unnatural and artificial and real and whether it's uh, sort of hubristic or mistaken to try to uh, surpass nature and then also the story of Prometheus and Epimetheus maybe we need a little more foresight uh, instead of going for short gain short-term gains when we're when we're dealing with inventions always think about what it's going to lead to and then aristotle also referred to these greek myths so we do have an idea that that philosophers and ordinary people in the time of aristotle thought about 
the meaning of these robots and uh, automatons, Aristotle said that uh, if only we had musical instruments that could play themselves or ships that could navigate themselves or uh, looms that could weave on their own, we wouldn't need slaves anymore. So they actually thought about the ramifications of creating artificial life that long ago. Uh, so I think that says a lot about Greek culture. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah, I think it's incredible just the similarities between then and today and all the lessons that we can learn from a book like this and all the research you've done. It's, uh, it just really humanizes people from the past. Yes. All right. You could bring us home, Karen. <laughs> so, Adrian, we have a question that we like to ask all of our guests, a final question. And so I'm very curious to see what your answer will be. Uh, what's your favorite monster? Oh, my God, I have so many favorite monsters. This mm, is really difficult. <laughs> I just a today, tough question. <laughs> today, I think I'm just going to go with um, the Sphinx. Ooh. Because uh, not many people talk about the Sphinx as a monster, but she she was a monster. And she's a composite monster. Most monsters are hybrid or comps, composites of at least two different creatures. She's got a lion's body and... Um, the head and upper body of a woman, beautiful woman, and uh, and then wings. And I think it's interesting, the origin, she was, some some said she was born to the Chimera and Orthus, who was the uh, younger, lesser, important dog, uh, who was the brother of Kerberos, who had three heads. Orthus had two heads. Oh, yeah. So she was born of two monsters. But other versions of the myth said that she was a woman who had displeased the gods, and they transformed her into this mm. monster. And it's so much like a fairy tale. She guards a road, a very pre- a precipitous road, and she won't let people by in Thebes unless they can answer her riddle. And she killed many youths who uh, tried to answer her riddle, and no, no one could, no one could answer uh, her riddle until Oedipus was able to figure it out. And then, when he gives the correct answer to the riddle, she throws herself to her death off the cliff. Which proves that even though monsters have wings in antiquity, they don't really <laughs> use them. <laughs> doesn't help. Um, but I also like it because she plays fair. If they, if someone answers her riddle correctly, then she dies. Uh, if they don't answer it correctly, they die. So it it, it was a fair proposition. It's just um, a very interesting story. And in ancient art, she's often depicted as dis- destroying or killing beautiful young men. And the pictures are are fascinating because they're they're not only violent but slightly erotic. So I think it's intriguing it's an intriguing monster who's well attra- attractive but uh dangerous so it's a it's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but when you think about how they end uh, it, it seems that the, the sphinx crashes but oedipus wrecks uh, <laughs> i'm gonna let you get away with that one that's great i like that it's <laughs> a good way to end the show <laughs> yeah. uh, but that that's a great answer and uh we have not had that response before, so that's oh, a, no, no. It's fantastic. I love answer. it. I love yeah. it. And you know, if you if you want to know what the riddle was, Google it. Yes, <laughs> it's a great story. Thank you so much. We've been wanting to talk to you for so long, and I really Thank you. appreciate. Yeah, this sounds like a fascinating book. I have to read it, and all of our listeners have to get it as well. <laughs> 
Thank we'll put, you so much. We'll put links in the show notes. And mm-hmm. uh, oh, oh, uh, are, is there anything else you're working on that we p- could be looking forward to? Uh, I'm mostly um, working on uh, spinoffs and giving lots and lots of talks uh, and writing about ancient technology still. So fantastic. Um, well, a lot more to write. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there. That's fantastic. There is, yes. All right. Well, thank you so Great. much. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Adrian. Lovely, thank lovely you. to chat with you. Have a great weekend. Bye. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Adrian Mayer, author of Gods and Robots. We'll have links to this book and several others that she's written in the show notes. Not books that she's written in the show notes, but links to her books that she's written will be in our show notes. Monster Talk is dependent on the support of our listeners, and we hope that you're staying safe and well in these strange times. We may need to stay apart to stay healthy, but we need to stick together to get through. Hang in there, everybody. And thanks especially to our supporters at patreon.com forward slash monster talk for helping make this show possible. Special thanks to Sean Parks for his help editing this episode. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening to our show. a Monster House presentation. Oh, brave and proud bull, whose mighty heart my son has fashioned of purest gold. Beat with the power as only I command. I made it perfect in every detail. Oh, mighty Abu Salem, you who rule over a thousand devils by all the fires of hell and darkness, Give strength and life to this your creature, Minaton. Minaton. Perfect. A colossus of bronze. And the mind of command.